Red-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is theologian Mary Hirschfeld. Now, you're probably wondering why I'd be talking with a theologian on an American politics podcast. And, you know, it's a good question. Uh, the answer is that Professor Hirschfeld isn't your typical theologian. She started out as an economist getting her Ph.D. from Harvard, after which she worked and taught as an economist for the next 15 years. She then made a, I think you'd call a fairly unique career change, getting a doctorate in theology from Notre Dame. She's currently an associate professor of economics and theology at Villanova, and her latest book is Aquinas and the Market, or The Humane Economy. Now, as myself, a a lapsed Catholic, I guess you could say, and a, a big fan of Aquinas, I was really eager to hear what, uh, what Thomas Aquinas, who's definitely one of the greatest philosophers and theologians of all time, had to say about economics. And so I found Aquinas in the market to be just full of fascinating insights. And so I'm really happy to have the opportunity to talk to Professor Hirschfeld about her book today on the show. So with that, Mary Hirschfeld, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. It's nice to, nice to be here. So before we get to Aquinas and the market. I mean, there's there's an obvious question everyone wants to know, and we might as well get it out of the way, I think. And you talk about it in the book a little bit. Um, how is it that you went from economics to theology? Because, you know, they're two disciplines that most people, I don't think, <laughs> would naturally associate. Yeah. Um, although for me, it's the most natural thing in the world. Uh, I'll start with a small anecdote. So when I was six or seven, my family actually was um, Methodist for like three or four years. And I went to a Lutheran school for first and second grade. So my heart's desire for Christmas, one of those years, was to get a Children's Illustrated Bible and a Monopoly set. So, <laughs> so I think my fate was sealed oh, yeah. from the beginning. Um, but more practically, I, we unchurched, and I just was a normal, secular kind of a person. And uh, economics appealed to me because I had this idea that it's about pursuing wealth, which is a good way to help make make people better off. So I, I just thought it had a lot to do with the pursuit of happiness. Um, and after my conversion, which was unexpected. Uh, it just seemed to me that theology was a better way of pursuing happiness. Um, but since they're both in the track of pursuing happiness, the question would be, how do you bring them into conversation around that topic? So it, there is actually that deeper connection that maybe people wouldn't think about at first. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and a lot of what the book wants to say is that a lot of our economic striving is actually just sort of a misguided way of trying to seek that ultimate happiness. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, so then I think, you know, also people might be wondering, well, okay, there's, there's this kind of connection between theology and economics, that, but it's not necessarily just theology. I mean, I, I, to me at least, it seems like Aquinas wasn't, you know, just a theologian. He was a philosopher and arguably one of the top, depending on how you rank these things, one of, you could say one of the top five, certainly the top 10 Western philosophers of, of all time. I don't think there's a lot of dispute about that. Um, and I want to make this distinction between philosophy and theology. To me, it's kind of an important one. And at least here's how I see it. Maybe you can sort of clue me in. Uh, philosophers rely on reason and argument. And whereas theologians may do the same thing, 
but they also accept certain religious doctrines as, as true, not based on reason and argument, but based on some sort of divine revelation. Is that, is that more or less right, would you say? Yeah, more or less right. Um, and, and, and Aquinas, at least at first blush, is, is willing to make a distinction like that. So, it, you know, his project is, you know, is to know as much as you can. So he's, he really respects philosophy. He, he dives deep into it. Um, but because he's, he thinks philosophy is pursuit of the truth, if he's got extra information for revelation, he's, you know, that will shape his um, pursuit of the truth. Uh, the only thing that I would add, though, is, is for Aquinas, I think this is important. Um, if you're going to really, because he, he spends a lot of time developing what can we know by uh, reason versus what can we know only by revelation. Um, but I think the proper exercise of reason for Aquinas should end up with us landing kind of in a place where we say, well, reason can't get us all the way to where we want to go. There's, there's a limit to what we can do. And that's how I read his proofs for the existence of God. Not so much as how do I get an atheist to agree with this, but rather if I'm really philosophically thinking, I would get to the end of the road and go, there's got to be more. What is it? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, when I read Aquinas to the extent, to the extent that, that I have, um, it seems to me that a, a lot of his thought, I mean, not just on God, but uh, economics and everything, really, you can make to a certain point that separation from his faith. I mean, it's not so simple as some people would say, well, Aquinas is, is Aristotle plus plus God. Um, but I mean, you can go, you, you can go quite far along agreeing with Aquinas without necessarily being uh, a Catholic or even really uh, believing in the existence of God, at least well, maybe that to a lesser extent. I mean, is that, would you say that's yeah, no, right? I, I, I think he's the sort of person who should be engaged with by everybody, regardless of their prior commitments. Now there's some places where he's going to make claims where you go and he'll be clear about it. Like scripture says, and so you know, here's what follows. Um, he's just a smart guy, and the way he thinks about human nature and sort of these larger metaphysical problems should engage everybody philosophically. Yeah, I think. And, and that's certainly what I what I've taken away from him, and that he's just remarkably rigorous. I found in in his arguments, and and also incredibly fair minded. And his whole approach seemed to be, well, okay, here's my argument, but here are the best arguments against them, and let me take those, tackle those squarely. And I, I wish more people would do that in their, in their arguments. I just love that you know that about Aquinas. It's my favorite thing. And it's not even just that he tackles the other arguments. He'll even say things like, you know, that's true in a certain sense. Here's how I'm going to incorporate it into yeah. my prior position. And, and that kind of synthesis is what I love about him. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And you know, the reason why I felt it was important to start with this before we got into our actual topic today is I'm betting that a lot of listeners aren't, you know, Catholic or, or necessarily even even Christian and possibly, you know, atheist. And the point that I want to make here is that at least on my reading is that Aquinas's message and, you know, by extension, your book, they don't necessarily depend on the reader being a, a Christian or, or a believer. Although, I mean, I feel like the message might resonate more strongly with people from sort of a Judeo-Christian tradition, which made me wonder, when you sat down to, to write Aquinas in the Market, sort of, were you thinking about a certain audience, a, a religious audience? And I mean, who do you see the book as being for, ideally? So, yeah, 
So you've put your finger right on what was just agonizing about writing this book. So it's, I call it my <laughs> audience problem. Yeah. Because I feel like having gone down this path, there was a lot I wanted to say to a Christian audience, but that there was also a lot I wanted to say to an economics audience, a secular economics audience. So I sometimes have tried at the end of the day to do both in the same book, um, which I hope comes out pretty well. So yeah. first and foremost, officially, the first task is since Christians should buy into listening to Aquinas as an authority is to use Aquinas to sort of clear out some naive criticisms people make of economics so that they can focus in on more theologically substantive concerns you might bring to it. Um, I love my church, but the teachings just aren't always well-informed when it comes to economics. So I'm trying to create that intersection. Um, but actually, when I sat down to write every day, in my head, I was talking to economists. I was first trained as an economist. That's, so the book is really also strongly directed in that direction. You know, I, I feel I feel like it actually does appeal very broadly, which is, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to I, I was hoping that we could have this conversation. And, uh, you know, though there is still this distinction, I think, that a lot of people would initially make between theology and economics as disciplines. And they'd say, well, you know, theology, theology is just so obviously biased, kind of almost by definition in some ways. And there are it's all about values and ethics and how to live the, the good life. So it's sort of prescriptive morally, but a lot of people would say economics is different because it's value-free. It's not about how to live your life. It's, it's essentially a value-neutral discipline. But in the book, one of the interesting, very interesting things, I think, is you argue that actually economics embodies particular values, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so you're talking about what economists would call a distinction between normative and, and positive, right? So mm -hmm. the theologians can go talk about what kind of a world we'd like to live in, and then if economists will be pragmatic and realistic and say, but this is how we are, let's carry on with that. Uh, and what I love about Aquinas is he gives me a vocabulary for saying, yeah, there's actually something to that. So Aquinas knows that as he's prescribing what you should do to live a good life or find fulfillment, he knows that most of us aren't going to do it, right? And and actually, if you go back and read what he says about the way we're going to think about things to the extent that we uh, screw things up, he describes a way of thinking that really is well captured, I think, in a lot of ways by the rational choice model. Like, you know, it, in advance of all of that stuff developing, he, he seems to think reason would go that way for people like us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so there's lots of room in, the, in, in his thought for what economists do in terms of describing human behavior. Um, but in addition to it, articulating his own idea about how things could be or should be, um, he, he at least provides me tools with recognizing that the economic way of thinking itself carries a lot of values um, that economists typically are blind to. And so the book is really spends a lot of time trying to call attention to that. Yeah, and um, I, I thought that was I thought that was a very valuable aspect of the book, and maybe this would be a good point then to to talk a little bit about. You mentioned the rational choice model, and mm -hmm. I think it probably would be helpful just to have a really brief sketch of how modern economists working in this model sort of view the world and what's important to them. Because you know, even though uh, behavioral uh, economics has made sort of a gained some ground in recent decades, I think still kind of the fundamental worldview of economists is that sort of rational choice model, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and we can come back and talk about behavioral economics also, but the rational choice model just says we all have a, a set of desires, right? And we can kind of rank order them. 
And, and the desires don't have to be selfish, greedy desires. I can be Mother Teresa and desire to help the poor. Um, we can have all sorts of noble desires, uh, but we, we can imagine all these possible bundles of goods that represent our desires and, the, and they're just ranged up. I think of it as a ladder that goes up indefinitely. And then we look at that ladder and then we say, well, I have so much income and I have so much time. How can I deploy my scarce resources best to get the best, most desirable bundle possible within my reach? So that's the rational choice model. And the rational choice model claims that we're able to do this successfully. And, and really all the behavioral economists are doing is coming and saying, no, actually we screw that up. So <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, so that's, that's sort of the rational choice model. And so that, that sort of, I think from that, you can sort of see clearly the values here, right? Because with that focus that economists put on uh, efficiency, utility, maximization, you know, there's this, it seems to me at least, that this idea that, well, other things being equal, more is better. More of what? Well, that depends on whatever you want more of. We're not going to judge that, but definitely more. And so our, our whole point is trying to find the most efficient way for you, whether you're an individual, an organization, or a society, to get more of whatever you want. And, and there's, there's obviously values embedded in that, that more is better. And also, there's this understanding or belief about human nature, right? That human desires are, well, without limit. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and the way it plays out, since our, des- you know, our ladder of desires could be anything, as you say, but it, we almost always think of it as constrained by time and income. So the more that we immediately want is more time and or more income. So economic progress is great because it just lets us go up higher on this ladder to get whatever it is that we want more of, right? So. Um, yeah, so where did I want to go from there? But, but I think when you talk about getting more of it, I mean, the more of what question is actually a, a pretty fundamental question, it seems to me. And, and if you don't have an answer to that question, you run into some problems. And this to me, you know, when, when people say, well, what could Aquinas have to say about the 21st century? I mean, he was a guy writing in medieval times, even if they're late medieval times still, <laughs> you know, um, and clearly he lived well before capitalism, well before the Industrial Revolution. But I think his, I mean, it seemed to me from my reading of Aquinas in your book is that a big part of what he's all about is, well, how do we, how do we order our desires, because if we're just kind of going off without any sort of a, a, a telos, a, a goal and goal in mind, we're just going to, we're going to be a disaster, essentially. Yeah, no, exactly. Or what we're going to find is that this, if I haven't thought about what's on my ladder and I just want to kind of go from one rung to the next, um, and I haven't ever step back and think about what the shape of my life should look like, what are the ultimate goods that really are value, I haven't done the human project of, of reflecting on what's important to want. Um, every wrong up I get is going to be satisfying for a while, but it won't satisfy. Aquinas says it's, it's, it, will, it will show its insufficiency because then you're just going to want another wrong and another wrong. Um, yeah, so, so his, his vision of happiness shares with economists the idea that we want as much happiness as we can get. So there is this idea of an infinite desire in both economics and Aquinas. But for Aquinas, the infinite desire is more qualitative. I mean, obviously for him, at the end of the day, it will only be satisfied in God. But even in this life, um, as I try to fulfill my human desire for better or, or you know, just to try to fulfill this infinite human longing, um, it's more like being an 
artist trying to find a beautiful painting, right? Rather than extensively getting more of whatever is on my list of things to get more of. Right, because the painting doesn't become more beautiful if you just throw more paint on it. Precisely. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's the analogy I use all the time. Or my other favorite one, you know, you don't make a poem better by adding more words into it. Right, right. right yeah. Yeah. So, so there's, I mean, and this, though, what Aquinas is talking about, it seems to me, again, kind of taking a secular twist on it, like there's a whole tradition in, in, in ancient thought about, you know, the, the problem with these kind of limitless desires. And so other folks have kind of approached it different ways. But like, for instance, the Stoics would say that, well, you know, you want to uh, excel and be the best human being. You can be virtue is your end goal and that sort of thing. But but it's a focus on limits, knowing that just chasing after more is not going to be an effective way to live a happy life, basically. Yeah, and, and, and I think a lot of the ancients, including the Stoics, are going to make a distinction between pursuing goods um, that have to do with being, like what kind of a person am I, right. developing a good character and that sort of thing. Uh, and the kind of kind of progress we pursue in, in the modern world tends to be more of trying to get goods that we can have, right, things that I can have. So, um, and, and all of the ancients, regardless of what they think that ultimate good is, um, are going to think that material wealth ought to be instrumental to that. It's a lower good. I want material wealth if it helps me to, you know, engage in certain activities, if it obviously keeps me fed and clothed or whatever. But, I, you know, I can live a gracious life and be a good person. Um, but because it's an instrumental, I only need so much of it. And, and if I shift to the idea that I could always want more of it, then I'm going to end up devoting my energy towards getting this instrumental good. And I, and I might never get around to the goods that it's actually meant to serve that are desirable in themselves. Now, I think that many economists might say, well, okay, sure. But, you know, for one thing, there's a pretty strong, they, they would argue there's a fairly strong relationship between wealth and happiness. Now, there are a lot of different ways to measure this, obviously, but, and you can take a look at the data, you know, in different ways and so forth. But you know, there are a lot of fairly highly reputable economists, like, like for instance, when I talked to uh, Tyler Cowen not too long ago in his, his latest book, Stubborn Attachments, his whole thing is, well, let's focus on economic growth above everything else in large part because we seem to find this pretty strong relationship between wealth and people's kind of self-reports of happiness measured in a number of different ways. Um, what do you think, how do you think you know, Aquinas might respond to that sort of, you know, data. Yeah, I, I, I try to avoid trying to channel Aquinas because I never yeah, actually had lunch with him. But <laughs> how would you? How, how do I think about it using my hopefully Thomistically informed yes, yes. perspective? Think about it. Um, now, it's funny you should mention Tyler because he and I go, go way back. And we've had this argument forever since like the first day of graduate school. So, um, so I have a couple of responses. First, if, if you read his book, a lot of his intuitions are, you know, that if we come out of, you know, the pre-modern era to the modern era, there's a lot of obvious advances that we have enjoyed. And even on this ancient framework that I've been describing, certainly getting up to having enough of those instrumental goods is really important, right? So I can't, so a lot of his intuitions are based on going from poverty to to where we are now. And then, and then the live question is, well, should we keep going? What kinds of goods do we think we're going to get or imagine that we're going to get if we keep going? And the data on this is 
controversial. I mean, there's no doubt that if you come out of deep poverty into into a, something more like, a, you know, a reasonable standard of living, uh, there's a big gain in happiness, self-reported happiness. Uh, but going forward from that, you might be able to find a correlation. You might not. Uh, if you do find a correlation, it doesn't look huge. Um, and then the second thing I'd add is uh, self-reported data isn't always the best. Yeah. And there's a lot of other data that seems to suggest that the modern era is not necessarily generating a huge amounts of happiness. There seems to be a lot of anxiety. There seems to be a lot of depression, a lot of stress. Um, certainly right now, we're undergoing a lot of social tension, turmoil, that sort of thing. And um, there's a lot of good reason to think that that might well actually be related to the fact that we're pursuing this endless growth and neglecting uh, cultivating these other higher goods that are what, the ones that are actually satisfying. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely with, when I talked to Tyler on that, that was part of the, part of the interview. I was <laughs> least satisfied. And, and, and recently I, I, I spoke to uh, Patrick Deneen about, about this. And it seems like uh, you and he and I, I think are on the right track with this. <laughs> I kind of disagree with Tyler a little bit. Um, but, you know, so I think another part of this, though, is that economists don't want to be judgy, right? Because if if we need to order our lives, that means we need to order our lives to something. And there's kind of a, well, who am I to say what you should order your life to? And I think most economists say, you know what, I'm not going to get into that, make those value judgments and just you pick your own thing, follow your own bliss, essentially. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and Whenever I talk about this material, you can always sense that there's anxiety that, that, that I'm going to follow up by saying, and now let's pass some laws telling yeah. people what they should buy or what they shouldn't buy. And, and uh, I'm absolutely opposed to that. You and I have had uh, brief exchanges about certain consumption practices. Um, I, I'm a vapor, and I don't want that regulated, whether right. it's good for me or not good for me. Um, so I'm, I'm, I like free markets, and I like freedom for all those reasons. That said... Uh, I think economists mislead their students, and we're talking, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of students each year, by suggesting that the form of happiness is to take your desires as given and then try to efficiently achieve them as best possible. Um, so all I'm really trying to push for is to create more space in the culture and even within the profession to say it's at least important, if not more important, to think about what you want yeah. and why you want it. And also, I think, to think about the form of it. So... If you think about happiness as a project of climbing that endless ladder, you, if you think about it, you're always going to be infinitely far away from that infinite good you're pursuing. Whereas I, yeah. So. I feel like when, when capitalism stops becoming a tool and becomes kind of an ideology in and of itself, that's when things start to kind of fall apart. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Like, I love markets. I think they're really beautiful and they can work well in, in a well-ordered life. Um, but yeah, it takes on a life of its own and, and, and is destructive and destabilizing, I think. Now, you, you talk in the book, you talk about uh, justice, and that's obviously one of those, from way back, one of those key ancient, you know, virtues. And it seems yep. important to Aquinas. And, and, and in the book, if I read it correctly, you argue that he would see our current economic system as, well, somewhat unjust in a number of really important ways. I was hoping you could maybe talk about some of those ways. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we tend to think about justice, uh, economic justice in terms of distribution and those sorts of questions, which actually just is not really very much on Aquinas's radar. Um, 
But I think what he has to say about personal justice is is way more important than you might think. So if I say, he says you need to, you know, have fair transactions with people, you might think, okay, fine, as long as I'm not a snake oil salesman, I'm good to go, right? As long as I don't cheat you and, and lie and steal, then, then I'm good to go. Um, but if you think about economic justice deeply, it means that when I confront, like say I'm, I'm a producer and you're a consumer, so I'm a baker and you come into my shop, it's true I want to make a living by selling you bread, but part of what I'm doing is I'm giving you bread, right? So, and I want to treat you justice. So I want to give you a good loaf, and then I want you to give me in exchange something that is fairly represents that value. Okay, and if you think about economic transactions that way, there's actually a fair amount of economic activity in our culture that do not meet that standard. So you can ha I could have in mind obvious things like cigarette companies lying to people about the carcinogenic properties of smoking. Um, you can come down a notch. There's a great book by Natasha Dow-Schull called Addiction by Design about the machine gaming industry uh, and how they try to deliberately get their consumers, their customers addicted to machine gambling so that they'll just drop their entire life savings into those machines. Um, that's clearly exploitative. It's clearly not just because you're just trying to take money in exchange for nothing, right, or, or give people things that harm them. Well, there's a lot of advertising that's there to try to get you to buy things that you don't want. There's a lot of practices. It just is kind of, you look at it, there's, there's a lot in our culture or in our economy that goes that way. Um, George Akerlof and Robert Schiller have a book called Fishing for Fools that basically says there's a lot more economic activity that is like that, and it's unjust. Um, not to mention that we shouldn't be counting it as, you know, an advance in our well-being. And in so. some ways, it almost seems baked into the system if we if we assume that, you know, the only uh, duty that companies have is to shareholders to increase the value, essentially, and that, uh, you know, uh, citizens, people, human beings are not ends in and of themselves, but a means to another economic end, then you're you're bound to run into a lot of trouble. Exactly. Exactly. Um, now, the, the, the hope from economists has ever been that um, the market forces will constrain me to treat you reasonably well. So if you come into my bakery shop and I give you, you know, really bad bread to try, then you won't come back. Um, but I, I think they overestimate how much market forces can constrain some of these bad behaviors. But also just we miss a chance to really enjoy the human, fully human aspect of our economic transactions. Like even if I'm producing for somebody at a distance, surely it matters if I'm thinking I'm trying to produce good products that will benefit somebody, right, at the end of the road. And, and I do, when I do my talk circuits and stuff, you'll often find businessmen who actually know this. Like when they get up out of bed, sure, they want to make a profit. They want to do right by their shareholders. But they also want to have a good place for their employees. They want to build a good community with them and their customers and their suppliers. Um, there's a, they're pursuing a lot of human goods and profits are in the mix, but that's not the overriding overarching aim. So it's possible. Yeah. To be done. <laughs> yeah. It seems to me it's almost, it's easier on a smaller scale because the further we are sort of physically and in many ways from, you know, between producer and consumer, then the harder it is to sort of build up those sort of relationships and care. It's a lot harder to cheat somebody that you can, you know, look right in the face or be unjust to that person as opposed to today when, you know, you're selling to somebody you've never seen from thousands of miles away, maybe. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. I, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think it's possible for somebody, you know, for an entrepreneur who's got a very large multinational firm to bring these values to bear in their work. I mean, there's going to be market pressure that will make it hard for them, but, um, but you're right. I think the larger it gets, the more bureaucratic it gets and the less, fully human it gets. Um, 
So I am kind of a small scale capitalist kind of a girl. So yes, yeah, me too. Um, you know, it, I, I think also you mentioned earlier that you're not talking about passing laws here. And it seems to me in a lot of what you're saying, I couldn't even imagine how you would structure legislation because it, let's, I mean, as, as many people certainly isn't an original observation for me, but culture trumps politics every single time, essentially, basically. Uh, no, absolutely. And, you know, one of the best insights you're going to get from economists is if you leave people's general desires intact and then just pass laws, you're going to get a lot of unintended consequences and many of them will be bad. Right. And I, I do wish people on the left would hear that more clearly. Yeah. Um, so, but also, I mean, I'm, I'm now 58 years old. I've been on the planet long enough to know that culture can move and it actually does change things. So to go back to the smoking example, yes, we had regulations that helped curb the smoking practice in the population, but there was also a cultural change in attitudes towards it. Yeah. And going back the, going back the other way, when I was in college in the 1970s and early 1980s, most people wanted to be doctors or lawyers or engineers. And now they want to be financiers. Yeah. There's, there's been a shift in the culture. And uh, I, I think, don't know. I think these things happen, but people are oftentimes, especially today, too impatient to wait for the culture to catch up. And they want to just sort of try to force it through legislative means. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's probably right. Maybe a little bit of hubris. Like, I know yeah. best. Let me <laughs> <Yes>. just. <laughs> exactly. In, so. Intellectual humility is not exactly thick on the ground these days, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'd just like to talk a little bit about private property. Um, now I, I've read a few things here and there about, you know, the, the first Christians, the very, very early church. And it seemed to me that there was a sense that those folks were very communal property oriented and that, you know, kind of looked askance a little bit at private property, but that's not really the view that Aquinas takes. And so I was going to talk a little bit about in, in what sense he sees private property as a good thing. Yeah, so you may have to cut me out on this because I cut me off on this because I just love <laughs> what Aquinas has to say on private property. This was actually my entry point into realizing that he was going to be this huge, valuable resource on all of this. Um, so yes, the, the early church, they weren't so idealistic think we could just have communism. They realized we needed private property, but they thought of it as a concession to human sin. And Aquinas comes in and he says, no, actually, it's not. I mean, sure, given that we're sinful, it's better than, you know, it helps. Um, but why should we have private property? Because I'm more inclined to work hard if I'm taking care of myself and my family. Um, I'm just more likely to look after things well if I have that order of concern, right? It's part of his explanation for the value of private property. My other favorite one is um, if we had communal property, we'd all get up in the morning and say, we're all goodwilled, we're saints. We're gonna go out and work for the common good. <laughs> You wouldn't know what to do if you have private property. Like I know what my sphere is, and so and then I can try, you know, import economic uh, analysis in that. That means I can specialize. I can have the greater knowledge about it. Um, it's it's a vision about private property is fitting to finite human nature, which I love, and it, it gives a powerful reason for why we should avoid central planning or things like that. Um, the trick is the difference between what Aquinas says about private property and what economists would say uh, is. He thinks it's an instrumentally good thing. Uh, so it's good insofar as it helps us create a flourishing economy that serves the proper purposes or ends of an economic system, which is to material provide people with what they need to do what they're going to do. And um, whereas we come out of the tradition generated by John Locke, which we take to be like 
because I own myself, I own what I've worked for, and it's more about rights. Um, for Aquinas, it's a more nuanced take. Like, it's a fitting institution, but it's also got this orientation back to the community. So it's a nice third path between communism and sort of a hard-headed individualistic. Well, and then one of the, one of the great things about Aquinas, I would argue, and I know you've said this in the book a number of times, is he kind of meets us where we're at. He's not unrealistic about human nature, and that I think is just super important. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, so, yeah, we're not going to build heaven on earth. We can try to make it a little bit better. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, how about income inequality? Let's talk about that for a minute, because obviously, you know this as an economist. I mean, right now, I think our level of income inequality is certainly the greatest it's been since the Great Depression. And I, I've seen arguments that it's the greatest it's been in maybe 100 years. But of course, you know, on the left, People say, well, that's, that's awful. But on the right, there are plenty of people that say, you know, inequality is this thing that doesn't really matter so much. And if you look at what really matters, which is standard of living, well, even the poorest of the poor people are so much better off and so much more comfortable than even the wealthiest people 50 or 100 years ago. So maybe the problem just is that people are too envious or something, and that's their own personal vice of the, you know, the lower middle class or something. Uh, I don't know, what, what, what's your, again, not the channel Aquinas, but what does Aquinas have to say about inequality in this sense? Yeah, so Aquinas himself lives in a society that's, um, class-based society where the, you know, the lords of the, um, the lords are not in the same class as the serfs and he's not troubled by it. So he's not a good resource if you want to go down and have some kind of leveling. Um, but me having been formed by his principles, looking at our current situation would say the following thing. I think both sides, um, make a mistake when they think about economic inequality. So if you look at the left, they get really worried about who has more and who has left. But I want you to notice that in that concern, they're saying what really matters is how much stuff do you have? And we just need to shuffle it around a lot. And that gets back to the idea that wealth is the most important thing ever and all the problems that come with it. And if you, and if you tell people wealth is the most important thing ever, it can't be very surprising if some of them are going to scramble really hard to get more of it and maybe even do some exploitation or bad things to get it. Um, then on the right, I, I just I, I think they really underestimate how important uh, social cohesion or community is. And if you start having these large yawning gaps between the very rich and the very poor, you just start fracturing society. Uh, and so when I try to think about the issue, I try to think, as always, in terms of what are the human goods that are served. Um, and I think you want to have some difference in income levels to acknowledge the fact that some people have worked harder or contributed more or whatever. I think that's all just and good. Um, but you also want to remember that every member of the community is valuable and is contributing something and finding, so finding social and economic ways of respecting that. So the gardener at the university may well deserve less than I do because I spent a million years in school and he just walked right in. So Nonetheless, I should know his name and I should recognize that he's, you know, doing valuable things. And and it seems to me that what's going terribly wrong in our culture is we're not just moving far away economically from the lower classes. We're disrespecting them. We're not seeing them as valuable people. And that worries me a lot. Well, you know, it seems to me that a lot of this, I, I would think that large majorities of people would agree with a lot of these things. You know, the idea that 
were too materialistic, uh, at least maybe maybe more on the left than on the right, I don't know, but that our lives are kind of fractured and disordered and that there are some major problems with justice and, and maybe lack of humanity and community. But, you know, to a lot of people, it seems to me that this is kind of baked into the system and that it's this is capitalism because capitalism is all about you, know, you put you put individuals pit them against each other they compete for scarce resources and as long as that's the case you're never going to have a, a humane economy and you know you end your book with a chapter called toward a humane economy and, and i'm wondering do you think it's possible to have a truly humane economy as long as we kind of have these bedrock commitments to capitalism and some would even say like like Patrick Deneen that liberalism itself is the the heart of the problem. Yeah. Um so I I try to tread I try to create a third path through these sorts of things. Um like I like I've been saying, I think markets are actually a humane and valuable institution. So I want to s- distinguish between markets and those kinds of liberal uh, institutions from the cultural baggage that comes along with the sort of ruthless profit maximizing capitalism. And because um, again, I, I tend to think as long as humans just sort of think that more is better, you can put them in any system you want. They're going to be kind of crappy. You're going to get kind of crappy results. Yeah. Um, so that's why I just relentlessly focus on, you know, a good life is where wealth is ordered to higher ends. If you could reflect on, and, and we're never going to, obviously never going to get perfect. We're not going to be a society of saints, but I think you can live in a society where people have at least somewhat more of a sense about uh, how to balance out these goods. And then you will have a more stable and more humane economy and society. So which, that's which, myself. Yeah. Which would mean a society then where kind of, and, and this is going to sound anachronistic and maybe that's part of the problem where the cultivation of virtue is something that's taken seriously and seen as very worthwhile and not as like part of some sort of you know liberal arts thing that's not worthwhile because it doesn't increase your earning potential exactly and absolutely and yeah. and that's that's my my whole soapbox that i <laughs> i won't go off on but uh, but yeah that's a, that's a big issue i think so no, we share that soapbox. So, and, and, and I'll just add this. I mean, I think capitalism has worked as well as it has because it had a lot of cultural capital to draw on yes. from, you know, the earlier centuries where people had spent a lot of time cultivating these things. But the more we focused on just efficiency, engineering, all the sorts of stuff and, and trying to marginalize the old liberal arts, um, we're losing that capital. And so I think we should not be surprised if it gets more unstable, more unjust, more yeah. harsh. Absolutely. Well, on that sort of depressing (laughs) note of agreement, I guess we'll we'll end. I've really enjoyed talking with you, uh, Mary Hirschfeld. Thank thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed our conversation. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard. Listener support is what keeps the show going, and we truly appreciate it. When you become a monthly sustaining supporter of the show on Patreon, you get not only our gratitude, but a supporter's exclusive bonus episode each week deep dive policy shows, and more. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash politicsguys or visit the support page on our website, politicsguys.com slash support. Subscribing to the show also really helps out, as does sharing episodes, which is easy to do right there in your podcast app. Word of mouth is absolutely the best advertising, and we greatly appreciate it. 
Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes or whatever podcast app you're using, that helps out a lot as well. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just something random you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, Will Miller, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.